Hello everyone. Hello. We'll give it a few more minutes while everyone is still finding a seat and then we'll get going. So my understanding is that this is the second last session of the day, right? One more session after this. Yeah, we've got one more session in the plenary. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Uh, for those of you who are here, I know we... Okay, we do have it up on the board, so you know what we're here for, the entrepreneurship session. So we'll be focusing on entrepreneurship and uh, specifically looking at the South African startup ecosystem. Uh, so welcome to the session, and uh, we hope it will be a lot, lot of value to you. Um, just like most of the other sessions that we've had this uh, today and yesterday uh, in the convention, uh, I'm really happy to announce that we actually have real practitioners in the space. So I'm really grateful to... Ilana, to Shafin, and to Sumari, particularly to Sumari, for stepping in for Daniel Guasco, who couldn't make it today. Uh, she has kindly agreed to, to step in for him, and she did so this morning. But thank you to Shafin, Ilana, and Sumari for agreeing to be here. Thank you, guys. In terms of the format, it's going to be quite a simple format, very conversational, so we're not going to have PowerPoint presentations. Um, we'll do very quick introductions, uh, and then we'll move on to some general q and I'll ask a few questions from my side. I'll get each of the uh, panelists to respond, and then after that, we'll open it up to, to you as the audience. So each of you can come, come uh, up with your questions. Uh, I anticipate there'll be about 15 to 25 minutes at the end of the session for you to ask your questions. Okay, great. So we'll start with intros. I'll start with myself. So uh, I'm Jiku Joseph. I work for a startup many of you know called Old Mutual. Uh, more recently, I spent some time in Silicon Valley and uh, I returned back to the group in August last year and I co-founded what we call the, e, the Old Mutual Digital Garage. The Old Mutual Digital Garage is an actual parking garage that was converted into a hub of innovation and human-centered design for the group. Um, in addition to that, I look after a startup that we acquired a few years ago called 227. Uh, and the mission behind 227 is to help South Africans better understand and manage and control their current financial situation. So that's me. I'll hand over to Sue Marie and then we'll take it from there. Yeah. Can everyone hear me? Thank you. Okay, cool. So. Um, I definitely did not expect to be sitting here this morning when I woke up, but you know, it's the other guy's loss, my gain, so here, here I am. So, a uh, little bit about myself, I've been consulting to the short-term insurance industry for more than, shoo, I never want to say it, 20 years, um, and I've been really privileged to work with a lot of really smart, um, good people over, over that time. And, to be able to work in an industry where some of the things that we are doing here in South Africa is most definitely world leading. Now, I think the, the challenging thing is that what consumers are expecting of um, their providers and, and corporates in general is changing. And what I found over the last three or four years um, in consulting to the incumbent players is that it is really difficult and very costly for them to make the changes that is required in order to meet these expectations. 
and whether it's because of legacy systems or whether it's because of corporate culture that is more focused on short-term shareholder value generation, whatever it is, it is really difficult for them. And um, myself and um, my fellow partner at, at Ernst & Young, Alex Thompson, saw that we had a, a real and a very tangible opportunity to make a significant impact in, in society. And um, yeah, so I resigned my corporate job uh, last year and uh, started Naked Insurance in November last year. So uh, I guess that's my, my story. Hello. Hi. Uh, so my name is Shafin. Uh, about three years ago, I co-founded a startup called Giraffe. Um, we started with the vision very simply to try and address unemployment but focusing in the lower to medium skill segment of the market where the problem was particularly acute. Um, basically, Giraffe is a platform that helps businesses find medium skilled staff quicker and cheaper than any other recruitment method. And it helps job seekers in that segment of the market um, basically just have access and visibility to job opportunities using nothing but their phone um, from anywhere, anytime, absolutely free. Um, before Giraffe, I worked as a management consultant at a firm called Delta Partners focusing primarily in the uh, sub-Saharan African region um, and in technology and telecommunications. And before that, um, I was a student. I studied at UCT. I did an undergrad uh, and a postgrad in actual science. Uh, that's about it. Hi, I'm Ilana. Uh, I work at a company called 8020. It's a consulting company uh, that I started with my husband, who's the actuary in the business, or was. Um, I was just the pretty face, so you can imagine the combination. Um, basically, the vision was to take some of the skill sets that actuaries use and apply them in settings that actuaries typically weren't found. So we, we kind of, my background was strategy consulting, and we kind of thought there was a lot of garbage going on in that industry, so could we try and at least uh, put a few models behind some of the work that, that, that was being done, use some data, uh, and try and ground decision-making uh, in, I suppose, a little bit of science. Uh, and that was about 16 years ago, and we're still, we're still growing strong. Okay, thanks, guys. Uh, so I'll kick it off with a, with a question. Uh, so I come from a, a very traditional Indian family, and in the, the traditional Indian family handbook for careers, the only job that starts with an E is engineer. So I'm quite interested in finding out uh, from you. We can start with you, Shafin, and then everyone else. You guys can chip in as well. Um, you know, what made you choose entrepreneurship over a conventional nine-to-five? Um, it's an interesting question. I, I think that I'm, I'm sure a lot of us have been in the situation where, you know, a few years into my career, I really enjoyed what I was doing. Um, it was cool, and I think the career path was great, but I struggled to find meaning in the work that I was doing. And I wanted to do more. I wanted to create something on my own and really solve a problem. And I think that coupled with the fact that I believe that entrepreneurship is actually something that's nested within your DNA. I think everyone to a certain extent is an entrepreneur, but some people more than others. And for those people, I think it's not a question of what they're going to do or why they want to do it. It's just a question of when. It's about having all the right factors align. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate in that, um, you know, in 2014, all those things sort of aligned for me. I was, a stage, I was at a stage in my career where I'd saved up enough uh, knowing that I could go on for the next 12 to 18 months without taking any salary. Um, I had just met my co-founder, 
who happened to be my manager at the time. And um, we, we got on very well. On a personal level, um, we had, we're, we're 10 years apart, so we had very good complementary sort of skill sets. But I think the most important thing is that we aligned very much on the same vision. We both wanted to use uh, technology to try and solve a massive problem. So that coupled with the fact that you know, we, kept, we spitballed a couple of ideas and we came up with the idea for Giraffe, which you know, we tested it. And from an economic, economic scalable business model, it made sense. But what really lured us to it was the fact that we could potentially create a company that had impact um, to help millions of lives, not only in South Africa, but all over the world. Um, so yeah, it was just, I think, guess fortune, luck, all of the things aligning at the same time. Cool. Elana? Well, I, th I think um, I don't like people telling me what to do, you know, and I think um, when I decided to resign, I worked at Anderson Consulting, that's what it was called in those days, it's now called Accenture, and, and I'd been getting a little bit irritated, and I came to work, and they handed out a flyer with the dress code, mm. and it was like, what am I doing here? I mean, if someone thinks that this is a valuable way for them to spend their time, to put together a flyer to tell me that I shouldn't wear combat pants to work, um, I'm probably in the wrong place. And so, um, so resigned and then, you know, so it took a while to start 8020, did a few things in between. But I think consulting is an interesting, it's an interesting avenue into self-employment mm. because it's, it's not really entrepreneurship, is it? Mm. I mean, we didn't need any capital to start up. We started up with what was in our heads. We started working you know, in a bedroom in our flat. We used uh, relationships that we'd made through our consulting careers to find our first clients. You know, so I'm trying to, you know, like, I don't think I'm, I'm that entrepreneurial, probably just not corporate. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if, if, that's, if that's a difference, but having said that, I think I do enjoy taking risk. Um, I like doing things and just seeing what happens. So sometimes you can't tell what the future's gonna be and just, just see what happens. And yeah, I, th I think it, it's, a wonderful, it, it, it's a wonderful thing to, to be in a position where you have the freedom to fail. Hmm. And I think both my husband and I had that because we had extensive consulting careers behind us and uh, real skill sets. What about you, Simri? So I can definitely uh, echo a little bit of what Ilana said. I think for, for those of you that, that know me, um, I, I don't think I fit that well into the corporate mold, and uh, this is probably why this is the second time that I'm doing this. Um, my first go at it was uh, also at a consultancy company that, that we started in um, 2001 called Quindium Consulting. Uh, that we then sold to Ernst & Young in, in 2011. It was an actual consulting firm, so, so I can definitely echo what, what Ilana is saying. And before that, I wasn't a corporate, so then went back to corporate. And I mean, if, if I, for me, what is the main driver personally and, and um, is the fact that what I have found, the two periods of time that I was in a corporate, what's the most important thing for me is the environment I'm working in and the people that I'm working with. And if that environment does not give enough autonomy um, and allows you to be the individual that you are, I think it stifles innovation and it also doesn't attract the right kind of people and the people I want to work with. So being in a corporate again, it was very obvious to me is if, if I want that environment, I have to create that environment. And the only way I can do that 
is, is to start my own thing and actually live, uh, live those values and, and have that culture within that company. So that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I, def I'm, I definitely do that, yeah. Oh, 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 just one other comment. Um, for, I would say I've never worked a nine to five day anyway, so <laughs> I think most of us that work for corporates don't work nine to five. I, I just, I think that was oh, unfair. That, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so the next question, uh, I know it's not uh, truly entrepreneurial, but uh, in starting your consulting business, Alana, we'll start with you on, on, on the other side of the table. What initial hurdles did you face when building the business, um, and how did you overcome them? Okay, there we go. The, the, main, the main hurdle is always finding good people to join you, and it still is. You know, so I don't know that's a, that it, that's a start-up hurdle, it's just a hurdle about being in business. So how do you find people who are passionate and interested and, you know, um, self-motivating? You know, it's, it's one thing if, if you're finding sort of, you know, mid-tier, um, sort of specific skill-level workers, but, but you're not. In this, in this case, you're looking for that kind of spark that tells you that this is a curious person who, who is passionate and driven, and how do you find those people? That's always been the biggest challenge. So um, I can definitely echo that point as well. Um, fortunately, it is, it is definitely a problem that we have, but it wasn't an initial hurdle, primarily because we couldn't afford anyone at the beginning. Um, so, you know, at the very beginning, being in a startup, you're basically going to war. Um, there's problems every single day. Um, so I guess, yeah, if we talk about initial hurdles, I'd say probably the most difficult thing was honestly just quitting, leaving my corporate job, leaving a, a career path with a clear trajectory, one that was predictable, one that was stable, relatively risk-free, giving all that up, taking all my savings and chucking it into a venture that I didn't know whether it would exist in three, six, 12 months from now. Uh, that coupled with the fact that you know, you have friends, you have colleagues that are trying to convince you to stay, um, and you have your mum, who is also, uh, who I incidentally also am from a very conservative Indian family, who's trying to tell you, like, are you crazy? Why are you giving up this lucrative career to try this mad idea and help people that you don't even know? Um, so <laughs> I, think, I think, honestly, the, 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 the most difficult thing was to stop listening to what everyone else said and just listen to what you wanted to do listening to your heart and following that, um, yeah. Uh, okay, so let me, let me say something a little bit maybe different because I, I think the, the two things that you guys covered are, are, are definitely true. From my own personal perspective, in, in the last year, because we've been now in this for a year, um, it's the, the breadth of skill set that you need. If, you, if you're in a corporate, um, you know, you, you've got your HR and you've got finance and you've got people that's worrying about the brand and the messaging and the marketing, whatever. Now there's no one, there's you. Okay? And, and some of these skill sets you just don't have and you kind of suck at them. I, I know, I'm not a good messaging person. I now know that definitively, but I'm getting better. And the tricky bit with it is that you actually can't fully outsource it. Some of the stuff that's core to you, it's like for example, what are you trying to achieve? What is this journey that you're on? You can't outsource that to some service provider. It just doesn't work. So I think that's been quite challenging, and, but 
also um, quite cool. I, I have been enjoying it. And I think the, the second thing that I found really hard is if you're in consulting, you, you know, you get a lot of positive affirmation. You know, you get people, oh, wow, well done, good <laughs> job, Sumeri. Mm. If you're starting a business, there's no one that does that. And mm. that's sometimes really hard, especially for someone like me that was very used to that. Um, so you either get no feedback or you get negative feedback. And I think getting over your own ego and, and, and dealing with that and just buckling down and believing in your mission despite negative feedback, despite it being hard, uh, I think is, is, is really important. So, so just one, sorry, just one last thing. So I think before any of you think of starting this, I would read a book uh, called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Um, it's really a depressing book. And, but, but I think it is, it is something, you know, so, so that you, yeah, that you, that you actually um, kill the, because every one of us have a romantic view about starting your own business. Ooh, it's so cool. It's going to be wonderful. So read the book first and then make the choice. That's what I would, uh, I would say. Thanks. Thanks, Marie. Okay, so this one is uh, closer to home for a lot of us, um, particularly those of us who are thinking of starting up a startup ourselves. So each of you is affiliated in one way or another with the actuarial community. I know, Ilana, you're married to an actuary. Shafin, you started off on the actuarial journey and then decided to pursue a startup. And then, Sumeri, you're a qualified actuary, right? So I guess the question here is, um, what do you think makes an actuary a, a good entrepreneur? And what do you think makes an actuary a bad entrepreneur? We'll start with you, Sumeri. Okay, so um, I think one of the things that has historically always been true and that I, that I still believe is true is that um, in South Africa, the actual profession still attract the people that's the smartest, I believe, and, and high potential, high drive, all those kind of things. And so you'll see that we've had a, a couple of people that has started truly inspirational companies in our country. I am sometimes a little bit disappointed that there's not more of them, given that statement that I've just made, right? I would have expected many more companies started by, by, by actuaries and actuaries actually using this intelligence and drive that they've got. Um, so I think that makes the actual profession quite suited to it because of, the fa of, of that fact. I think uh, one of the challenges of the actual profession is that the training we get um, teaches you to think in quite a linear fashion, right? So this, then this, then this, then this. And I, and I think when you are actually starting a business, it doesn't work linearly. It kind of takes a bit of a meandering path. And um, I don't think the actual training prepares us very, very well necessarily for that. And the second thing I would say is just that um, I think as actuaries, we have uh, quite a uh, golden path uh, through everything that we do. At school, you probably did really well. You go to Vars, you do really well. You found a job really well. You could pick out of three things, um, you know, and then you get promoted as you pass. And it's, it's almost just, if you tell people you're an actuary, you know, it's, it's, it's like a pass. It's a free pass in a certain way. And I think when you're starting a business, none of that matters. None of that counts. And I think to a large degree, none of us get taught how to market yourself. Because if you're starting a business, you need, to have, uh, you need to know how to market yourself and to have grit to, to continue. Um, because of the fact that the fact that you're an actuary means absolutely, absolutely nothing. So that'd be me. Cool. Thank you. Shafin? Um, so it's funny. I, I've actually had this conversation with a lot of my friends. 
and they all come to me and they say, actuaries make terrible entrepreneurs. And it's this bogus reason where they say, no, actuaries are all risk averse. And I think it's absolutely ludicrous to like, you know, paint an entire profession with one stroke. Um, on the contrary, I actually think actuaries make really good entrepreneurs, especially in the context of this day and age, right? I mean, if you think about any sort of tech startup, the core function that they need to be really good at is data, data analysis. In this day and age, there's tons of data. Um, being able to process that data, analyze it, infer meaning from it, and make decisions from it, regardless of what startup you're doing, regardless of whether you're trying to create a platform to reduce unemployment or uh, if you're trying to disrupt the way insurance is distributed, whatever it is, data is key. And I think that that's a skill set that you know, few actuaries appreciate. It's something that you have um, and is nested very deeply within, within you. Um, in addition to that, like, I think that the profession and, and, and the education actually equips you with a number of softer skills that are quite useful in the entrepreneurial world, right? So, um, for one, I think that actuaries are really good creative problem solvers. So I remember uh, sitting in my CA1 exam and, you know, looking at a question and wondering what the hell this is. It has nothing to do with, you know, the, the, the material that I'd covered the night before. Yeah. But it's always about just... <laughs> well, you didn't get to the material. This is where the creativity comes in, you know? It's about applying a framework, looking at a problem, and creatively coming up with a solution with it, for it. And being an entrepreneur is very similar to that. Mm. Every single day, you're faced with new problems. Mm. Um, and those problems are often quite unique. They're unique to you, to your startup, your geography, your team, your product. And only you can come up for, with a solution for that. You're not going to help, get help from anyone else. Mm. So that, that, I think, is something that's, again, you know, really good about uh, that, that comes from being an actuary. The last point is, um, I think that people don't realize it, but when you're, when you're an entrepreneur, again, it's, it's like being in a war. You wake up every morning and it's kind of like, okay, I know that there's five fires that I have to fight today. I know as I go in, there's going to be another five sort of battles that I have to, to wage. Um, and it's tough. It's really, really difficult. Of course, there's, there's the good. Um, and it's fantastic when things are going well, but more often than not, things are going bad. Um, and having that, that determination, that grit to keep going, kind of reminds me of being a student again. <laughs> it's, it's like going back to university and you know, failing your tests and feeling, failing your tut and somehow wanting to go into, well, going into an exam and having that perseverance, having that confidence that, well, not confidence, I don't know, uh, <laughs> determination, I guess, to try and, 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 and pass those exams. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, it is a softer skill that it does instill within you, uh, something that I value very much. Cool. Lana. I don't really know that I'm equipped to comment on this. Uh, I can only comment on what it's like hiring actuaries, and, um, and they're definitely my favorite hire, because definitely the issue of data, that there's a familiarity with data analysis and no fear of working with big data sets. But then also there's something about actuarial modeling techniques. So if, if you work with, with accountants and, and you ask them to put a cash flow model together, they'll do it at a top line level. And then they'll carry through you know, those top lines all the way through. If you, do, if you, if you work with an actuary, well certainly the case with, with Amnon, my husband, it's always the model point. It's always from the customer up. And, and that's a fundamentally different approach to thinking about what the future is going to look like. And um, certainly that approach, funnily enough, I mean, you know, the, the stereotype of the actuary being very distant 
you know, distant from the client, that approach aligns very well with a customer-focused way of looking at a market, that you're thinking, okay, we've got a whole lot of consumers out there, some of them are going to behave like this, some will behave like that, let's put it in a model, let's run a Monte Carlo simulation, let's see what happens and aggregate the results. That's a fundamentally different approach to modelling. So that's from an employer's perspective. I don't think I can comment on the rest. <laughs> Your husband is in the audience? No, he's at home looking after the children. <laughs> okay, so, so, you, so you were free to say what you wanted to say. Great. So next question, I'll start with you, Ilana, uh, on, on the other side. So do you think corporates and startups can coexist to increase the size of the pie for both entities? And, uh, or, or is it actually a case of zero-sum games, so David versus Goliath? Um, uh, and in either case, what do you think each group can actually do better to support a stronger ecosystem and a better South Africa? You know, it's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, in my case, uh, we feed at the trough of big companies. So it's a completely functional ecosystem, and we're very happy that big companies exist because they can pay our bills. Not too many companies can. Um, in general, what we're seeing, and it's a fascinating thing to look at the South African market and the structure of so many sectors in South Africa that are dominate, dominated by, by two or three large players. Um, I mean, there have been some really interesting companies that have come in new companies and displaced a whole lot of old companies. So I'm less concerned about that. I think there's some interesting dynamics around the question of economic inclusion and participation and the extent to which big corporates are, I suppose, um, aware of the impact that they have in specific sectors and segments of the market. And um, in particular, there's, there's an interesting commission hearing, competition commission hearing at the moment on the retail, the grocery retailing sector. And one of the points that they're exploring is the impact of big grocery retailers on township business. And it's a really interesting question and of course no one really knows the answer because on the one hand it could be a functional ecosystem, on the other hand it kind of seems intuitive that if a shop right opens in your neighbourhood you might shop at the local spaza shop a little bit less. Um, but what's really interesting to me in that conversation is um, is the political undertone mm. and, and then how we take sides and how we prejudge the outcome and how we think through this and absent in all of that is the perspective of the, of the consumer. So when I have a conversation with people who do work in the informal sector and they tell me that what is the impact of pick and pay opening a store with a Bourville stand right outside on the local Bourville seller in the township, my question back to them is, why does the consumer choose to buy the Bourville's role from pick and pay and not the local township retailer? And I think this is the issue that for me it's less about a competition between different sectors and segments on the supply side and more about the degree to which a company can meet the needs of the market that it's serving. To the extent that big companies put barriers in place to prevent smaller companies from meeting the needs of their customers, that's problematic. But often that's not what we're really seeing. So it's you know, it's, it's, you know, in some cases there might be issues, in other cases it's really just to switch the question a bit and say actually small companies sometimes have an advantage because they might know their market better and they might be more driven and they might be more flexible mm. and if there are problems, what are the factors causing that? It might not be uh, the power of the big corporate, there might be some other issues there too. Um, I think Ilana raises some really interesting points. Um, specifically from the context of traditional business. I think I can comment more from a tech perspective. 
um, where in the tech world, actually being small you know, isn't really a, a hindrance. Uh, the beauty of the internet is that you can reach scale like this. With two people in a garage, you can start serving a website to the entire world. Mm. Um, and in the tech world, it's interesting. If you look at all the Goliaths that exist today, the likes of Apple, Facebook, Google, mm. Uber, all of these guys started off as tiny little startups. They're far from startups now, but they started off as startups. And for sure, because of that, you can say that, yes, startups and corporates can coexist. But I think the, the real question here is, well, it's the fact that they need each other. And I don't think they, they really understand that. So I think both, people ha both parties have egos. <laughs> and what, what we need to accept is that startups are actually really good at certain things. A startup team is generally small, they're very nimble, um, they have talented people with bright ideas, and they're able to look at a problem, an age-old problem that's been done the same way over and over and over again, and to look at it from a completely different lens and sort of disrupt the industry. That's something that no matter what any corporate tries to do, because of legacy, because of politics, because of all the bureaucracy and red tape that exists, they cannot keep up with a startup. Mm. Having said that, corporates have deep pockets. They have massive resources, they have scale, they have a large clientele base. And so for me, most definitely what needs to be happening is startups and corporates should be working together to get maximum, uh, to get maximum bang for your buck, these two parties need to be working together to solve the same problems. Um, and unfortunately, we're not seeing very much of that happen these days. Instead, it's, uh, it's, they, they see each other as threats. But as a society, if we want to move forward, the best way to do it is if startups and corporates work together. I'm not going to say too much. I think both of you actually covered it really, really well. And Shipin, I, I fully agree with what you just said. I think big corporates are very good at making big bets, right, on things. They have a direction that they're moving in and they, and they push money into that direction. Now, unfortunately, and, and if I talk about the insurance industry or the financial services industry that we're in, it's not that clear what is the right direction to be heading in. So they're making a big bet and they're going down that direction. But as we have seen, even in our industry, and I mean, you also spoke about the, the job that, that you're now doing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it is the right thing for big corporates to support smaller businesses that look at very bespoke bits of, of their business that will disrupt their business because it's not a large investment. They need a totally different culture in order to do it. And um, once they then understand what is the new direction of movement, then they can put the big bet into that. So I do think it can be quite a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. So the next question is um, around the difference between Johannesburg and Cape Town. So when you're starting up a company uh, in, in the South African context, you often have the choice of starting up in Johannesburg or in the Cape. Uh, based on your experience to date, how do they compare startup hubs? And we'll start with you, Simari. Um, so we are a Joburg startup. Um, I think the startup culture, actually I know, the startup culture in Cape Town is, is definitely much more vibrant and alive than it is in Johannesburg. And I mean, whatever you look at, there's a lot, lot more of a startup culture there, whether it is in terms of communal workspace, whether it is in terms of independent consultants that actually know how to deal with startups, 
We found, to a large degree, in Johannesburg, a lot of the um, people that you deal with, they've got a very much a big corporate mindset, and it's very difficult to to get them to move that into what you need as a startup. And there's not a lot of communal workspace or those kind of things where you get groups of startups actually in one space supporting each other and you've got easy access to things. Um, that being said, um, I do believe that that will change in, in Joburg quite a lot uh, over the next uh, two or three years. Um, so whenever you go to these startup meets, 10 times out of 10, somehow someone or the other is going to bring this up. And I don't know why people do it. You know, which is better, Johannesburg or Cape Town? And like, the, the honest truth is there are merits to be operating in both cities, right? Um, and exactly to what Sumri said, if you look at Cape Town, the, the, cult, the culture and the ecosystem is probably a bit more developed. Um, I mean, you have access to a large pool of talent coming from Stellenbosch and UZT. You have incubators and you have, um, you know, uh, tons of funding sitting in Stellenbosch. So, you know, perhaps, yeah, there, there is uh, an argument to be made to work in Cape Town. But having said that, if you're operating within a B2B context in, in South Africa, there's no way that you can exist without having a presence in Johannesburg. Um, but putting all of that aside, I think that's honestly the wrong conversation that we should be having. The right conversation is, where is South Africa? Where is the South African startup ecosystem relative to the rest of the world? And the answer to that is, actually, we're really far behind. It's sad because um, we have a ton of problems in this country. Um, and I believe that SMEs and startups, that's, that's the way to solve it. However, the ecosystem is still at a very nascent stage. Um, you have tons of people that come out of university, bright-eyed, tons of really cool ideas, but when they try to launch their startup, they don't have access to the right networks, they don't have mentors, they don't have funding, and they struggle to get anything off the ground. By the, on, on the same sort of token, you hear lots of funders with deep pockets saying, actually, they want to be investing in startups, but there's none of these startups that exist. It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Um, and I think what we really need to be talking about is how do we catalyze that ecosystem? How do we solve that chicken and egg problem? How do we, meet, uh, how do we match the talent and the, and the bright ideas to the resources necessary to execute on ideas and really disrupt and solve the problems that we have in this country? Just to, to also, just sorry, I know it's not my turn, but um, <laughs> no worries, so, so one of the things I just want to say, because if we don't do that, what is the risk? As you said, you know, you can have two people in a garage starting a tech company anywhere in the world solving some of our problems that we have here. And transporting tech from one country to another is hell of a easy to do, right? So what is our big risk here? Our big risk is if we don't solve this, we are going to get international people that's going to come in here and solve it for us. Yeah. So we need to solve it um, to prevent that from happening. So, sorry, I just needed to get that no, off my no chest. Ilana? I think it all comes down to the sea and the mountain, you know. Um, <laughs> um, that's the only thing I can say. <laughs> Great, thanks. Cool, so uh, that's it from my side. Uh, I'm going to open it up to you guys. So anybody have any questions that you want to ask our panelists? We have one in the front here. Where's the roving mic? Mike at the front. Okay, it's on its way.
That's one at the front here. Right at the front. Right at the front. Okay, so that's not working. Maybe you ask the question, I'll repeat for the audience. It's <laughs> a, a long question. Okay, while we're resolving the mic, uh, let me ask a, a question to one of our panelists. Uh, so, uh, actually, no, to you, Alana, uh, around social entrepreneurship and impact investing. Um, while I was in Silicon Valley, it was one of the things that most entrepreneurs were, were shouting from the rooftops. You know, I'm a social entrepreneur. Uh, I believe in impact investing. Uh, do you believe that that is actually the case for most startups? Um, uh, and uh, uh, if not, uh, what can startups do more to actually operate from a social perspective? Um, yeah, we always joke that actuaries, I mean, they're, they're sort of anti-social uh, <laughs> enterprises. Um, um, but I, th I, think, I think it's really about a framing of, of, and this is, I find it fascinating that we have a category called a social entrepreneur, um, or we have a category called impact investing. We should have a, cap a category called oblivious investing. Everything you do as an investor has an impact. You know, it's whether you choose to pay attention to the impact or not. And likewise, every business is a social undertaking. It impacts on customers, it impacts on staff. Whether you want to be oblivious to that, you know, that's your choice. And I think that really, the question that, that we, we've been dealing with one client of ours who's a very big infrastructure investment company operating on the African continent. And they had an internal workshop about their values. And one of the questions the consultant put to them about their values individually was, if you were to win the lottery tomorrow, would you come to work? Mm. And the executive team by and large said, no, they wouldn't come to work. And when I think about that question in my context, if I were to win the lottery tomorrow, I would go to work and I would take the money and I would fund a whole lot of research projects that I'd really love to do that I can't find a client. So I love what I do and I do what I do because I love it. Is that an entrepreneur? I don't know. But th that's something I think that if you don't have, it's probably going to be pretty difficult to motivate yourself to get up every day, to be resilient and all, and, and all of those things. I think in South Africa it's got a different spin to it too. I mean to be oblivious in South Africa it's just unthinkable. How can you be oblivious? How, how can you be oblivious to the impact on the, on the customer of the way you've set up the incentives for the agents that you employ to sell insurance and investment products? How can you be oblivious to the fact that when you have a poor person sitting in front of an incentivized, commission-driven salesperson, it is highly likely that something's gonna go wrong how can you be oblivious to all of these things that are happening around, around us in this country um, and go like, well, I'm just here to make money and if I had a lot of money, I wouldn't do what I'm doing. So I think it's just framing it differently. I think, I think really it's not about being a social entrepreneur. It's about just not being completely oblivious. Great, thanks. Have you sorted out the mic? I think so. Great. Uh, sorry, my name is Tasias. Uh, I just want to cross-check what I've read before. And uh, I read somewhere where it says, uh, an advice was being given to a teacher. It says, uh, look after your A-grade student because they'll become a fellow teacher at some point. Look after the B-grade student because they might be winning a Nobel Prize. And look after the C-grade student because they might become a millionaire and donate to the school. 
And I also read somewhere where it says, uh, the A-grade student who work for the C-grade millionaire. <laughs> and, uh, and most of the people in this room being actuaries are probably A-grade students. Mm. And uh, is, is there something around an A-grade student that doesn't want to take further risk because you could just follow the linear route and follow a career? Uh, whereas a C-grade student probably thinks, I'm not going to waste my time here around this A-grade student's playing ground. I'd rather think of something outside the normal world. And then become innovative, entrepreneurial, and do something more interesting. I think I got A's. Um, I don't remember. <laughs> um, I graduated. I could have pursued a degree in, well, a career in actual science. Uh, ended up going into management consulting. Went pretty okay. But I think all of that was, it didn't matter. Because like I said from the beginning, entrepreneurship is something that's within you, um, regardless of whether you get A's, B's, or C's in school. And if you, you know, like for me, I've always like, looked at the world and seen problems that I'd want to try and solve somehow. And that's something, that's a voice in my head, um, voice in my heart that's you know, never quietened down. And I, I don't think it has anything to do with the grades that I got in school. Um, and regardless where in life I was, I think I would have pursued the same path. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm an anomaly, I don't know. Just a comment from me. I think what you're saying is probably very true, right? If you think about, if you, if you have a child that's an A-grade student, um, the path that you implicitly install in their minds is, is not one of starting their own business, unless you are an entrepreneur yourself. As a parent, I think you are risk adverse for your child, and therefore, I think that's where the problem starts with this. Yeah. Is and but if you're if you've got a middle of the road child, you might encourage them more to to look at entrepreneurial ventures, and and because you don't see that as such a dangerous thing, you see it more as a dangerous thing for them to to try and go and compete with the A grade students for the top jobs in the in the corporate. Yeah. So I think the the problem actually starts at home. Um, and how you raise your children and what, um, what you make them believe uh, their potential path in life can be. So, yeah, that's what I think. Okay, I want to change my answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, um, yeah, no. <laughs> Come to think about it. So, I actually think it's nothing to do with you. I think it's the evil corporates. So... <laughs> Honestly, so one of the biggest problems uh, that startups face in South Africa is actually hiring a good team. And when you're a startup, look, at the beginning, it's taking a massive risk for next to nothing in terms of pay. And if you're a qualified actuary coming out of varsity, being offered three, four, five different jobs from all the big corporates, you know, promising to give you everything in the world, why the hell would you give all of that up to work in a startup? Unless you're stupid or crazy. So maybe I am the gnarly. <laughs> I can also chip in, like, I guess, before I, I give you a shot, Ilana, my, my view is exactly the same. I think it's the universe of possibilities, right? The A student has so many more conventional possibilities that are available to them, whereas the C student is looking for alternatives. Actually, the most resourceful people are generally the people who are necessity drives invention, right? Um, and actually, universe of, and, and the universities also don't do entrepreneurship, at least and up until very recently, don't do entrepreneurship many favors because that's not the 
angle that they promote. If you think about career days, like how many startups actually show up to career days. If you think about the, the, the professions that your, your professors are actually training you to become, it's not necessarily with an entrepreneurial slant. So I think it really comes down to universal possibilities that are available for different groups. But it's also very much a self-driven uh, self passion. Lana. Yeah, I, th I think maybe it's also about what do you think your purpose is in your life? I mean, are you just here to make as much money as, with as lowest risk as possible? Is that, is that what the game is? You know, and then hopefully you die and leave your kids a nice bequest. Is that it? Mm. You know, and, and how, is, it, is it possible uh, to, be, uh, to be in a job, in a corporate, and find the kind of fulfillment that you could find if you were out there making those big decisions yourself. I, th I think this issue of entrepreneurship, you know, I think it's just so poorly defined and poorly understood. I, I, don't, you know, I don't really know what it is. For me, it's more around who makes the decisions about what the priorities are uh, in the eight or nine or 10 or 11 hours a day that I'm working. Who makes those decisions? Who says what's important? Who, at the end of the day, gives me a sense of an, an, an accomplishment? Um, and, and if that is just getting a, a paycheck, and that's very nice, then that's good. You know, and you can find accomplishment in your golf club and in the work that you do at your kids' school. There are plenty of ways to find personal fulfillment. But for some people, I think that is going to be in their jobs. And I think it's very hard to create those kind of spaces in very big organizations. Um, so it's less for me about entrepreneurship and more about sort of your own agency and controlling your life. Great, thanks guys. Any other questions? I've got a question here. Yeah? So there was one in the middle. Oh, there we go. Uh, questions for you, Chiku. So you spent some time in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. Uh, what would you say the top two or three insights that you gained from there which would be most applicable to the South African environment are, effectively? Well, great. So the, the one, one thing I actually wanted to comment on during the... It's tough to comment on your own questions. Uh, but the one, the one uh, thing I found quite insightful in one of the, the lectures that uh, I, was, uh, I was privy to while I was there was the, the fact that the best entrepreneurs are actually the best risk managers. Uh, an entrepreneur, by their very nature, knows that they are. So there's this misconception, right? That actually, uh, sorry, that entrepreneurs are basically these risk seekers. They're always looking for risk. They just want to take on more and more and more risk. But actually, the best entrepreneurs are the guys who understand that this is a very risky space, and everything I do, every single action I take, is with regards to mitigating that risk. So it starts with the amount of money that I spend to actually validate or invalidate a particular hypothesis, the size of team I start with, um, the types of experiments that I'm running, um, uh, you know, how much funding I actually require at what point in time. So all these things uh, are really important considerations for the entrepreneur to make, and the best entrepreneur actually appreciates that and puts in, plan, uh, puts in place plans to actually mitigate the risks that they are facing. Um, that was one of the key, key things I picked up. I think the second thing I picked up was the, the gap, the big gap between where we are as South Africa and where we need to be. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, in, in the Cape, we actually have a lot of the initial elements. Um, we have uh, capital. Well, we don't necessarily have that much capital, but we have some access to capital. We have access to a great learning institution. Stellenbosch is a fantastic learning institution. Um, and then you also have, um, you know, the, the, uh, 
the onset of a culture of uh, of people who want to do who make who want to make a difference in in South Africa, right? But where we have gaps in South Africa today versus uh, Silicon Valley, uh, you know, one of the main things is this uh, the the importance of diversity. So. In, uh, in Silicon Valley, if you look at the companies and the makeup of the companies and the skills that they're actually recruiting into those companies, it's people from all over the world, you know, and it's really, really top skills who are actually able to acclimatize to that environment very quickly. Because un unlike, you know, so we're, we're in a world where there's Trump America, right? But Trump America is very different from California. Uh, it's a very welcoming place and actually very open to bringing in uh, diversity of skills. And if I think of where we should be uh, playing as a country, where South Africa can really uh, move the needle for, for, for our entrepreneurship spaces, while the UK, while Europe, while America is closing their doors to immigrants who are highly skilled, that's where we should be saying, actually, you know, we've got this incredible um, uh, startup ecosystem that's, just be that's beginning to thrive within the Cape. And we're more than welcome to have you. We're, we're welcoming. We want you to be part of that. And the diversity of expertise that you bring will actually help move uh, our startups forward. So I thought that was a, another big finding or another big learning for me while I was there. I've got a question at the back, right at the back. Oh, before the gentleman, one right at the back. Please put your hand right up. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Jiku. Um, so actually, generally, we work in a risk and a financial industry. So I think if, if you were to ask me, or if you were to tell me, start a new company, I'm going to think risk, I'm going to think insurance, I'm going to maybe think blockchain, what can I do with that? You know, where's technology going? But there's so many other areas of, you know, where, where we can add value. If you look at places like Uber or Airbnb, there's so much data, there's so... You know, it's such a data-rich, technology-rich um, area. And I think, you know, our problem-solving skills, our data uh, analytical skills can add a lot of value. Even, let's say, the, you know, the drought in the Western Cape, um, possibly there's, there's this value that can be added. You know, we're not engineers or hydrologists. But how do you convince, and maybe this is a rhetorical question and, and a question to myself, but how do you convince actuaries to look beyond just the risk in the financial industry? And also, how do you convince you know, entrepreneurs outside of the actual profession to, to approach actuaries and to work with actuaries to solve, you know, wider problems. Thanks. Again, I'm not 100% sure that this is a problem that we can give to the outside to solve, right? Mm. I think if you want to start something or you, you need to feel passionate about it, like, like Ilana spoke about purpose and, and what mission are you on? Right, so um, I think it's not a question of convincing people uh, of that they need to think wider than FS or whatever. It's more about do you feel passionate about some specific problem that you're trying to solve, whatever that might be, yeah. whether it is your holiday accommodation like you spoke about with Airbnb or whatever it is, or whether it's helping people find jobs, you know, or whether it is the consulting business that Ilana is doing, using data to, you know, give customer insights. Um, the, you can't really say that we need to think wider. We need to think, what are we passionate about? What is our mission in life? What is our purpose? Why are we on this earth? And if you're on the earth to, um, you know, just have a normal job and like Ilana said, um, contribute broader to society through 
earning enough money to to contribute to uh, I don't know uh, uh, a school uh, in a disadvantaged area, and your best way of doing that is through having a good corporate job, then that's your mission, and that's fine. If you want to think about if you want to be an entrepreneur and you've got a different mission, you have to feel it in your heart. You can't. I, yeah, that's all I can say. Elana. You know, I had a conversation with Dave uh, Strugnall. Um, I don't know if, uh, if you guys know him. He's an actuary in Cape Town, uh, very involved at UCT. And he spoke about starting an organization, I don't know if he has, called Actuaries Without Borders. Um, I'm actually starting an organization called Madams Without Borders. Uh, I don't know if anyone wants to join. Uh, basically, I think when you live in South Africa, there are no borders. Um, and whatever you do, at some point, you're going to face a reality of having to apply either your own wealth or your insights or your skills to work in a broader social context. And, and I think actuaries, you know, maybe, maybe it attracts a particularly modest group of people. Maybe that's, and, and so many actuaries that I know are so modest and so unassuming. Um, but the skill sets that you have are just phenomenal. And I see that because I come out of a consulting background and I studied economics for what that was worth and maths. And, and when, when I sit with actuaries who are aware and looking around them at the world, they have such an enormous contribution to make. So I don't, I don't, I don't even think it's a... I think if, you, if you're asking that question, um, it really is symptomatic to me of how actuaries underrate themselves. Um, it is a phenomenal training, phenomenal, and the skills that you have in the way that you're taught to think in thinking about when people are going to die, I mean, it has enormous, wonderful social benefits. So, um, so I would only encourage you to think broadly and to put yourself forward, and I think you'd be surprised at how appreciated um, actuaries are and just how much currency that word actuary has when you walk into a conversation with anyone. We've got two minutes, so um, uh, there was a gentleman at the back who had a question. White shirt, hand up. There we go. Thank you. Thank you, um, Jaku Langner. I just, um, I was wondering how did you decide to bet on this specific venture that you're on? Because I think even, uh, even if we look at the, the convention this year, there's been so many interesting topics and so many inter interesting problems that we can solve. How did you decide in your respective businesses this is it. I'm now betting the, the house on this. Um, so I think for me, like, uh, to echo both points made here, it's passion is the number one thing. So working in a startup is always extremely difficult and you're faced with many dark days. And passion uh, for the idea, the problem that you're trying to solve is the only thing that's going to get you through. So that's one thing that's obviously extremely important. Um, and the rest was just all the other sort of hygiene factors that need to, to come together, right? So um, having a team in place is probably, for me, the most important thing. Having a team that's diverse, that has a wide array of skill sets, that's able to take any sort of problem, those that you anticipate and those that, that you don't, and able to come up with a solution for it. So having the team, having the resources, um, to, and all of those things just sort of coming together, really. Um, yeah. 
I wasn't paying attention. I was busy ordering the new That's fine. Because I've got a flight of four, so, so I have to run. Have a no worries. <laughs> okay. um, I think it's, it has to be something that you're passionate about. And I think if you look at most successful uh, startups that are now no longer really startups, it normally starts with a problem you personally have and that you feel passionate about solving. So you have to, that's normally the first place to start. It might not be where you end up eventually because a lot of the problems you're trying to solve, no one else uh, has a similar problem because there has to be at least quite a sizable group that has the same problem that you have. But um, I think that's, the, that's normally the best place to start. Sorry, okay. just, just to add, yeah, I mean, it goes without saying that you should probably do a lot of your research beforehand mm. as well. Mm. So, I mean, before uh, we got into our venture, there was about six months where we just collected data. Mm. So it helped that my co-founder was my manager, and we'd go into meetings, and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was just about doing research, understanding our market, firstly doing a market yeah. sizing, understanding what our, our, our model was and whether it made economic sense at a, at a unit economics level. Um, and then, yeah, we, we went to outside Builders Warehouse, we had a fat chat with the guys holding those placards, um, looking for jobs, understanding our market and understanding whether the idea we had was one that the market needed and one that needed to be solved. One, one last tip, right? So, so this testing that Shafin is talking about is, mm. is really crucial. And, and the thing is, you can actually test something very easily and very cheaply. Um, for those of you that are interested in some of the techniques, look at the Google Venture Sprint process. Um, there's a book called uh, Sprint by J.P. Knipe. Um, Jake Knipe. Yeah. So, so if you, if you want to read that, yeah. it's an easy read. It's quite entertaining. So if you've got an idea, that's a good way of, of quickly testing it with some, some real live customers. So, yeah. Great. Cool. So unfortunately, we've run out of time. Uh, but we will be here afterwards for you to, to come and ask your questions. The last thing I want our entrepreneurs to leave you with is, uh, and you've already had your chance, Sumer, you've said it <laughs> twice, uh, book, podcast, or website that you would recommend any one of the budding entrepreneurs to read. Um, go for it. Stop with you, Lana. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment which is fantastic at putting me to sleep. So if any of you um, suffer from an insomnia, it's called Strategy, A History. And, and it's, it's really fascinating um, and it really works if you are on insomnia. But I really do recommend it. It's a wonderful book. Um, it really helps help me to understand uh, a lot about, uh, about how to change. If your mission, if you think you, you need to change the way people think, some of the things that you can, you can do in that space. Um, if you're looking to get into uh, entrepreneurship, two of the Bibles that I recommend as must-reads are Zero to One by Eric Rice. Mm. Test this concept of MVP very quickly testing an idea and making sure it's validating it with the market. And Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel exited PayPal along with Elon Musk, super big billionaires. Mm. Really good framework to um, look, at a, look at an idea that you have and validate whether it makes sense. Mm. First book was The Lean Startup, right? Lean Startup by Rick Reese. Okay. Great, guys. That brings us to the end. Thank you very much uh, for being an audience. And if you have any questions, come through afterwards.